You're listening to the Oil and Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Welcome back to another episode of Oil and Gas This Week. This is episode 112. So this past week, Mark and I were in Calgary for the 2017 Geo Convention as the keynote speakers. So big thank you to Geo Convention for having us. It was a great time. Uh, we really want to bring as much value as possible to the audience while we were there, um, which was primarily vendors at the convention. Um, so we dove into how the industry is changing and how they need to adjust their sales and marketing teams uh, in order to be successful in this new environment. Um, but before we get there, Quick thank you to our on-the-road sponsors, Total Land, which is the world's most advanced field land management system. Check it out at TotalLand.com. And Lee Hecton Harrison, uh, the global experts in talent management. Uh, LHH is currently helping 75% of the Fortune 500 oil and gas companies simplify the complexity of leadership and workforce transformation. All right, so without further ado, let's get into it. Enjoy. Uh, but without delay, so I'm not up here because I know these guys can talk for a while, um, <laughs> so I've heard. Please welcome the two successful businessmen that co-host the number one podcast in the industry, Oil & Gas This Week. They've come in from Houston. They have over 350,000 listeners in 178 countries. I'd like to present Mark LaCour and Jacob Corley. Thank you. So can I just say... You step into a lunch where they're serving wine right out the gate. This is great. I love Calgary. <laughs> I'm coming back. All right, I want to tell you a little story. So, I got a buddy of mine about my age, has a son, graduate high school, doesn't have a lot of direction. And my buddy's like, man, I don't know what's going to happen with my son. I don't know if he wants to go to college. I don't know what he's going to do with his life. And so I told him, I said, you know, my grandfather did this to my dad, so you may want to try this yourself. He goes, what? I go, we're going to take some stuff and we're going to put it in your son's room and we're going to hide and we're going to see what happens. He goes, what kind of stuff? I said, well, first thing is we're going to put a dollar on his bed. Um, the reason we're going to put a dollar is that if he comes in that room and he picks it up first, he's going to be a businessman. Next thing is we're going to put a Bible. If he walks into his room and picks up the Bible, we know he's going to be a, pe a preacher. Then we're going to put a bottle of Jack Daniels. If he comes in the room and picks up the Jack Daniels first, I'm sorry, but he's going to be a drunk. Then we're gonna drop a copy of Playboy. If he touches that first when he walks in his room, he's gonna be chasing women and just not really be good for anything else. And then we're gonna put a rifle. He picks up the rifle, he's gonna be a soldier. And so my friend says, you know what, let's try it. So we put the dollar and the Bible and the Jack Daniels uh, and the Playboy and the rifle on his son's bed. We got in the closet, we hid, and we were there forever. And eventually we heard the door open and the son comes in and he looks down he picks up the dollar, sticks it in his pocket, puts the Bible under his arm, takes a swig of the Jack Daniels, leaps through the Playboy, puts the rifles on his shoulder, and I go, oh, my God. And my friend goes, what? I go, he's going to be an oil man. <laughs> so, that's a true story. All right, I want to talk about our past. As an industry, we do not like change. Um, we don't like change, and it comes across as being old-fashioned, but what it really is is that it's risk-adverse. Which, by the way, can y'all hear me okay? Yeah? Okay. Um, and the reason that we're risk-adverse in this industry is because when we make a mistake in our industry, the consequences are unbelievable. People die. 
And not only do people die, you can have a huge environmental catastrophe that destroys a company overnight. So in our industry, when you build a process, and whether that process is how you cement a well, how you do accounts receivable, um, how you go out and look for new hires, and nothing leaks and nothing blows up, you do not want to change the process. Well, that's change. I've been in this industry for 20 years. This is my fourth downturn, and I have never seen this perfect storm come together that's coming together right now. That perfect storm is a, a bunch of things. We're in a hydrocarbon abundant world. I got a bunch of geophysicists and geologists out there. You know this. That shell geology, that's not unique to North America. That's all over the world. Um, we're lucky that we have the infrastructure and that um, business know-how to get those hydrocarbons out of the ground economically. But for the rest of the world, they're right around the corner. Um, we also have new wealth stimulation techniques, which means we're able to go back into existing uh, uh, reserves and, and re-stimulate those wells. Um, Unfortunately, back in the 70s, a guy named Hubbard that worked for Shell came up with a peak oil theory. And it was based upon the science that he knew at that time. The problem is he didn't know what the future was going to bring. Um, we will run out of hydrocarbons one day, just like one day the sun will run out, run out of hydrogen, and I think it's going to happen about the same time. Hydrocarbons are everywhere, so prices are going to stay low. The next thing is, is we've had this huge drain of senior talent. This is the point where I usually start talking about the old guys in the industry. And I have to stop because I'm now that age, so I can't say old guys anymore. Um, but what's happened, this downturn's different. Every other downturn I've been through, the senior people, if they left, they came back. Now, there's a special relationship in oil and gas, even though it's a large global industry, and it's that we take care of our own. So these senior people, whether they're a senior geologist, a senior account manager, a senior project manager, when the new people came into the, to the company, they kept the new people from making mistakes, right? They watched them. Maybe it was an official mentoring program, maybe it wasn't, but they kept their eye on them. That is gone. The senior people have left the industry and they're not coming back. Um, that means that there's this huge gap in real world knowledge that nobody knows how to address. Uh, we speak to a lot of young people first, that have their first job in the industry and they miss that. They miss those senior level people because yes, they learn academia, they know what it says in the textbooks, but the guy that started in West Texas 30 years ago in some well, what's in his head is invaluable. But the flip side of that, besides that, that knowledge gap, is that we're not passing on that culture of risk avoidance, which is inherent in our industry because the senior people are no longer here. That means this new generation that's coming in our industry is very open to new ideas and new processes. The other thing that's changed is decreasing cost of technology. Jake and I were talking about this, this just earlier. So I have a 128 gigabit flash drive I bought for this trip. It cost me like $11. Ten years ago, you couldn't even buy that, right? Five years ago, it would have cost you two or three hundred dollars. And it's not just storage; it's network transportation, it's memory, it's RAM, it's processing power. You know, software as a service, Internet of Things, cognitive, big data analytics—all that stuff's gotten really, really cheap. Our industry as a whole is looking at all of that. We haven't figured it out. And yes, if there's some vendors out there, I know you'll tell me that you figured it out, but we haven't figured it out. But it is going to make a huge impact to our industry, and it's starting to happen right now. Then. The final part of this perfect storm is our new workforce did not come up through the field. These young people are coming in our industries, grew up as tech natives, right? My 11-year-old can search for stuff on his iPad way quicker than I can, and he's only 11 years old because he grew up doing that. So this new tech-friendly work workforce comes in our, our industry, and they look at these multi-billion dollar year projects we're doing and going, why are we doing this in Microsoft Excel? 
there's better tools out there, Microsoft Excel. As an industry, we've always used Microsoft Excel, and so we always want to continue to use Microsoft Excel because of that risk avoidance. The new people that are coming in are going, there's much better tools, there's much better processes. We can get access to this data much easier. We can show it real time instead of, you know, 72 tab Microsoft Excel spreadsheets. So this perfect storm, oops, sorry. So this perfect storm is overlaying some other key factors. Now this is an internal survey. Uh, we talked about the podcast, you know, Jake and I have the number one podcast in the oil and gas industry, which sounds really cool. The truth is between just us here in the room, I think there's only five of us doing it, so it's really easy to be number one right now. Um, we have several more in the works. We have oil and gas HS&E, um, which is a great podcast focusing on health, safety, and environment. We just launched oil and gas industry leaders, which is all a deep dive into very senior uh, uh, people in our industry. And we have several more. Uh, one, one is tentatively called The Rock Podcast. Uh, we have a lot of requests from people to un want to understand geophysics and geo geology. So um, if we end up launching that one, I will personally email everybody in this room to let you know that it's been launched. But this is from my company, Modal Point, my consulting company. And what we do is we do market research for other companies in the oil and gas industry. But we also do research for ourselves. I have to know what's going on inside of uh, leaders' heads in our industry so I can help my clients. And this is a survey that we do every year of about pretty close to 1,000 people that work throughout the industry, upstream, midstream, downstream, and service globally. And it's that manager of manager level, so not executives who have lost sight of what's happened in the street, not frontline people that only worry about getting their job done, but that middle layer. And we ask them, if you look at your business and look out over the next five years, what is the number one thing you're worried about? And even this low crude price environment right now, number one thing they're worried about is talent. There is not enough talent in the pipeline, both skilled and management. Um, there is not enough engineers, there's not enough project managers, there's not enough salespeople, all right? There's not enough machinists, welders, pipe fitters to come in our industry, and that's a gap. Um, I think I know what that solution's gonna look like, but that's another part of this perfect storm is there's literally not enough people. And I, yes, I know we're in a low crude price environment. This low crude price environment is the, the swing of the pendulum. This is my fourth one I've been through. Trust me, I, you know, we're predicting at the end of 2017 there's gonna be inflation again on land. I think there's not gonna be enough parts and people and pumps on land in North America to, to meet supply. I think the chokehold the operators have on the service companies is gonna flip itself back around. The service companies gonna have a chokehold back on the operators. I don't have a crystal ball. We'll wait and see if I'm right about that. Um, and we just talked about this, this engineering gap, right? So all of our engineers in our industry are around my age, getting ready to retire or have line of sight retirement, or they're fresh out of school. Where is that middle layer that we need to be able to cultivate, build, promote, to help run our industry? It doesn't exist. Now, so yeah, we're in a low crude price environment. We're coming out of the downturn. Um, a lot of people think they know what's going on in our industry. Um, I challenge you that if you want to be successful now and in the future in our industry, from a business point of view, you need to really understand what's going on. Not think that you do, but really is going on. So we're have a little fun with this, okay? So then we'll go quick, pay attention. So ExxonMobil drills an ExxonMobil drill ship. They ship an ExxonMobil pipeline. They refine an ExxonMobil refinery, and they sell an ExxonMobil gas station by a show of hands, right? Right? Yep. Wrong. That is not how this industry works at all. This is a room full of upstream professionals. There's more to the industry than upstream. And it's vital that in the future you understand how this thing works. I'm going to go real quick, but I'm going to take you on a journey from the moment that drop of oil is discovered until it ends up in fuel in your gas tank. But we're going to take that journey from a business point of view. All right. 
All right, in the U.S., the biggest profiter from hydrocarbons is the U.S. government. They own most of the leases offshore, right, where the conventional reservoirs are. So this is 2013 data, so don't, get, uh, don't apply this to date metrics, but $2 billion. BP paid $2 billion for Deepwater Gulf of Mexico lease. That's not a monthly payment. That's a check of $2 billion. That was one of 797 leases BP did that year globally. This is why I get upset when people talk big oil. You have to be big to be able to play in this industry. There's $2 billion out the door from BP and no money coming in yet. All right? Now, BP does not own a single drill rig. In fact, on that drill rig, there's only one BP employee. It's called the company man. So they rent a drill rig from Transocean. Um, this is an ultra deep water rig. It went for a million dollars a day. So you got $2 billion out the door, $1 million a day. You still haven't made a penny. Got to crew that drill rig. Well, it's crewed from companies from the service companies, the Halliburton's and the Baker Hughes's. Now, you in the room, if you've ever touched offshore, you know there's about 1,000 other companies that fit in here, not just these two. But in the interest of time, we'll stick it to two. Well, there's 600,000 a day. So $2 billion out the door, $1.6 million a day, and you haven't made a penny. Only about 74% of offshore wells in the Gulf of Mexico are profitable. In this case, they were lucky. So BP struck oil. They could go into production make money at it. So what did they do? Did they send it to a BP refinery? No, it's sold in the global market. In this case, ExxonMobil bought it, right? So there's BP upstream making money. They don't care who buys oil. As long as somebody pays what they want for it. Now, this oil needs to be moved. Guess what? Chevron has a super tanker sitting empty. So Chevron won the bid to move it. So there's Chevron midstream making money. It's not their oil. It's not going to their refinery, right? They're making money. Now, on the way to bring this oil to the Exxon refinery, a, a trader in the ConocoPhillips trading floor realized that the winter in the Northeast was going to be one and a half degrees colder than normal. He bought and traded that oil. He just made ConocoPhillips $41 million. Not his oil. He never touched it. It's not going to his refinery. All he did is trade a commodity, right? Where does it go? ends up at a shell refinery. They're shell downstream buying raw feedstock. They didn't produce the oil, it didn't come from a shell rig, they bought it on the open market. So then shell refines that, that crude and turns it into to market, marketable products. Uh, marketable products aren't necessary fuel. That's what everybody thinks of, jet fuel, gasoline, diesel. It's also things like plastics. So 91% uh, of all plastics used in the world come from natural gas, from ethylene crackers. 85% of everything in a hospital emergency room comes from the oil and gas industry. 62% of the world is fed from natural, fertilizer made from natural gas. That's all downstream products, right, that you don't ever hear of. Your iPhone could not exist without hydrocarbons. Your, your Tesla, which is a great car, could not exist without hydrocarbons. All right, so the Shell refines the, the products and they want to bring it to market and they're going to bring it to a gas station where there's Kinder Morgan transporting that refined product in the pipeline. There's Kinder Morgan making money. It's not even crude anymore. It's a refined product and all they're doing is providing transport. And where does it end up? In the 76 gas station. I forgot to do the research when I come up here. My apologies. But in Houston, Texas, no matter what gas station you go to, whether it's a Chevron or Exxon or a Pumex or a Valero, it all comes from the BP refinery. It's logistics. Gasoline's heavy, six pounds a gallon. It always comes from the closest refinery. Whatever refinery is closest to Calgary, no matter where you buy your gasoline, that's where it comes from. And what happens, that gasoline is exactly the same until it hits the terminals, which typically is, is either a pipeline or a tanker truck. And when it hits that terminal, each company, such as Shell or 76 or Valero or Luke, adds their own additives, and at that point, the gasoline is, is differentiated. Um, about five years ago in the U.S., gasoline was hitting over $5 a gallon on the West Coast in California. And there's this email going around basically saying, Thus, everybody boycott the Exxon gas stations on Friday, it will force them to lower their prices so we get better gas prices. 
What people don't know, because they don't understand this, is that Exxon, number one, owns zero, zero gas stations in the U.S. It's the least profitable part of their business. In the U.S., you have something called a jobber. Uh, in the U.S., a retail gas station makes between thirty dollars and $40,000 a year in profit, mainly from the soft drinks and potato chips they sell, not from the fuel. And so a person typically has to own two, three, or four of them to make a decent living. It's called a jobber. So when this email was going around in California, number one, the Californians were not only not hurting Exxon at all, they were actually hurting one of their neighbors who depends on that fuel station to make a living for him and his family. So I want to back up here, except I don't know how to work the remote. All right, if I, if I burn somebody with the laser, it means I don't know what I'm doing. Okay, there we go. So anyway, that's how the, that's how the business of oil works, right? One of the things that's going to be different as we move through the future is that all of us, no matter what part of the industry you're in, you have to understand how you play with other parts. Um, the speed of technology adaptation, the speed of globalization, the speed of geopolitical change means that what we do, we need to understand what the end product is. We need to understand where the money is. Where, where is the, the opportunity for us to make money? All right. And the reason I bring all that up, and you may not be able to read this because it's small. <clears throat> so this is... Um, an article talking about ExxonMobil's international downstream earnings increased 100% year over year. How many in the room right now think this industry is hurting? Right, all of us? When you're as big as ExxonMobil and a piece of your business grows over 100% year over year, that's not hurting, right? Jake and I just did a show, and what was it domestically, Exxon, was it 61% downstream that increased their earnings? That sounds about right, yeah. Yeah, right? So part of our industry is on fire right now. Imagine if you had a business making men's suits and you had, it was a global business and you had supply chain sourcing all your raw cotton and you had manufacturing and you had uh, uh, distribution, you had retail and your business was humming. You were selling suits all over the world, all these countries, all different sizes. And you woke up one day and you picked up your iPhone and you looked at it and it said, boss, our raw cotton material has just been cut by 60%. Think what that would do for your business. It would explode in growth, right? Because your, 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 your basic feedstock has been cut so much. That's what's going on in downstream right now, petrochemicals. Their raw feedstock is crude natural gas. Let me ask you this. Are y'all paying less for car tires? Are you paying less for your nylon polos? Your golf balls? Glues? Paints? Adhesives? Bug spray? They're making more profit, aren't they? Right? Their raw feedstock's been cut by 40%. All that comes from crude natural gas. They're keeping the margins because nobody knows that tie-in. That's why you see all over the world, but especially in the U.S. and in Canada, you see all these ethylene crackers being built. Ethylene cracker basically converts natural gas to plastics. We have enough plastics in the U.S. We don't need any more. The rest of the world, however, needs more. The emerging economies in Russia and China, you know, Vietnam, India, they don't need Tupperware right now, but in the next year or two, they will. All these ethylene crackers are capturing that future market. The reason I bring that up into a room of upstream people is you need to understand that your raw product that you produce there's a big market for it, right? And that market is keeping the margins. That margins fairly, you would hope, maybe would be split with y'all, especially in this low crude price environment. Um, but you need to understand how this works, because I'm telling you, in the future, if you don't understand how um, the products and the services that you provide fit into the rest of the industry, you're gonna get left behind. And we're gonna get deeper into that. Um, so now I wanna talk about how to sell. I got started 20 years ago, worked for the phone company in the East. I just needed a job. Um, and so they go, Mark, we have the perfect job for you, um, but it's had declining revenue for over 30 years. I go, I'll take it. And it was their oil and gas book of business. And I knew nothing, nothing. I knew the oil went in your car in a crankcase, right? You had to change it so often. Um, didn't know anything else. And I flew out to San Ramon, California. Uh, met my first lowly procurement guy. I was in my Bell South 
tie and suit and my little brief bag. And I walk in and shuck, stuck up my hand and go, hey, I'm Mark LaCour, I'm your new Bell South rep. And he picks up his head and he looks at me, he doesn't shake my hand, and he goes, we've been paying tariff rates for over 50 years. Why the heck should I be talking to you right now? And that was my introduction to the oil and gas industry. Uh, you fast forward to now, and that guy is uh, one of my best friends. I'm the godfather of his children, and he's in charge of all the supply chain for Africa for Chevron. Those days of selling, the way we sold back then, is different. Everybody in this room probably understands that marketing has changed because of technology. Sales has too. So back in the 80s when I worked at Bell, part of being a good salesperson was I was an educator. I would come to you. I would come to Halliburton. I'd come to Chevron. I'd come to Slummerjay and go, here's all the stuff we can do for you. Please tell me which one you need. That doesn't work anymore. The reason that worked back then is there was no internet. Halliburton had no idea what I could offer them. Neither did Slummerjay. Neither did Chevron. So I had to be an educator. You fast forward now because of the internet, people in those companies can spend five minutes online and learn everything about what you and your competitors do, including your prices. So they don't need you to educate anymore. They need you to help be a problem solver. So one of the first things that you have to learn about sales in the new world of oil and gas, you have to be the consultant, right? Not the salesperson. You can, oops, sorry. You cannot make anybody buy something that they don't want. We all know that, right? We all cringe when we walk in the car dealership because somebody's gonna try to make us buy that yellow Ford that we don't want. But then our sales teams do the same thing in oil and gas. How many cold calls do you make today? How many times do you, How many times do you take home somebody to play golf? That doesn't work anymore. The other part of that has changed so much is that there used to actually be decision makers. And I hate that word now. There are not decision makers anymore. Yes, in small companies there still are, but in large companies they're not. Our industry has learned that when there was a single decision maker, that was, he always did not make the best choices for the company. Because if he played golf with the right vendor, well, the vendor stuff got sold. Now it's decision making teams. Right? So as a consultant, you need to come in and understand what is the problem they're trying to fix and understand if from a business point of view you can help them solve it. And if you can't, you're the first one to say it. I do it all the time in my consulting business. People reach out to me all the time. I go, you know what, we don't do that. You're seen as a different light. You're not seen as a vendor anymore. And if you do that ethically and transparently and you help these big companies solve problems, you're now seen as a partner. And that puts you in a totally different world. Then the other thing you have to understand is the business is everything. Our industry as a whole uses something called a chargeback model in a lot of places. So things like IT, HR, legal, they all charge back the business for their services, how they fund themselves, which means they have no discretionary spend. They have no budget. So if you go to Chevron and you go talk to Chevron IT, which is called City, and say, hey, I got this new technology I want to sell to Chevron, number one, they're going to feel threatened, right? Because every year they're told to do more or less. And, and number two, they're going to go back to the business and go, we can do this better, which is a lie. But they can't even buy your stuff. And even if they want it to, they have to go to the business and explain why to get the money as opposed to go talk to the guys in charge of North America operations for Chevron, even this low crude price environment, I guarantee you he probably has 500 million a year of discretionary spend. If you can help him solve a $10 million a year problem for 5 million, he'll write you a check. You may still have to go talk to IT, but you're in a different place. But you have to understand the business is everything. Then you have to be a data collector. The old days of sales, you would go in and I would go, what's your pain points, which I hate that now, right? I would come in and ask you to tell me what you need for me to sell to you. That doesn't work anymore. People are too busy and technology has changed it. As a salesperson, as a business development person, you need to do your work up front. You need to be able to walk into your prospect's office and with 100% certainty say, I know you have this problem. I know it's costing you this much of money. I know you've tried to fix it this way and it didn't work. I think I can help you fix this. So you have to collect all the data up front. It's still the same amount of work in the sales process, but the work's done up front today versus years ago where it was done at the end. You got close to closing, right? You had to craft your proposal. 
you need to walk in and within that first discussion, both of y'all need to figure out whether it makes sense for y'all to go forward again. A different world. Think about your own life. How many people cold call you? How many people call you? How many times you answer that phone and you don't recognize the number, right? Doesn't happen. Different world. Then, because our industry is complex, you have to have a strategy around what you're doing. The old days of winging it doesn't work anymore, right? Who, who are actually the, the part, people on the decision-making team? Which one of them actually has budget? Which one actually may have a, your competitor as one of their choices, right? Uh, what is their buying time? Is it, are they even looking to buy anything? One of the things about our industry is because we're so enormous and we have our organization structure so thick that a lot of times somebody will have a question like, so what's the new geo software out there? And they'll send eight or 10 people to go request information. Well, from a company, that looks like an opportunity. It's not, they're just gathering information. You need to not waste your time with those people. You need to quickly identify that those people are just gathering information. They're not actually looking for a solution yet. If there's not a time element around it, walk away from it. Same way with responding to RFPs. Unless you help write the RFP, which is a different strategy itself, be really careful you don't waste your limited resources responding to RFPs. Typically, big companies require X number of vendors to enter there. They already know the vendor they want to award it to, but you're cannon fodder. Why waste your time giving a company your valuable resources when they just want to use you so they can so, so uh, supply chain they had five people enter. It's a different world. 10 years ago, yes, you responded to all the RFPs, right? Because you had a good chance of winning them. It's not like that anymore. Then you need to set the agenda. You're the professional, you're the problem solver. If you're in that office, that means they have an interest in you helping them solve the problem. You need to make sure that you know what next steps are, what are next logical steps. What do you need from them, right? Um, if, if the next step is you want to meet with that decision-making team, you say so. And if they don't want to do it, you walk away. You be nice, but you walk away. You have limited time in your business development world, um, and that limited time needs to spend with high-value opportunities. It's a different world. It's, it's, we're all busy. Even in this down low crew price environment, your sales and marketing teams are still busy running down leads. What happens when 97 98% of those leads fail, right, which is what's happening right now? The old way of selling doesn't work anymore. You need to flip that on its head and only spend the time, your limited resources, on those opportunities that have a high probability of closing. So you have to set the agenda. Doesn't mean that you're rude, doesn't mean you don't work with them. Um, then you always need to connect with a, a senior person. What happens inevitably is that you have these one or two people you're connected with and they get hired by somebody else or they get fired or something happens and they disappear and all of a sudden an opportunity goes dark. The way you protect yourself from that is in the very beginning, you tell that, that team from your, your prospect, hey, I need to connect with a senior person so that we have that relationship. I will not try to sell to him. I will not go around you unless I have to. And if you're very open and transparent, they'll help make that connection. The senior person gets benefit out of it because this opportunity is probably one of 30 under him that he's watching. He, he's not involved in it day to day directly, but it's one of the things he has to make sure happens in some way that makes sense for his company. So by him having a connection with you, he understands that if something goes bad, you'll reach out to him to keep him from looking bad. So you always need to reach out to one senior person. The other thing that in today's world we tell our clients is that you need to go wide immediately. So if you come into a company and they want to buy your product or service, go great. Who else in your company may also have an interest? I'll buy lunch, we'll come in, and we'll talk about how we can help you. That way you went from one internal contact to 20, right? So if something goes south, if you lose some contacts, that opportunity is still viable. If you don't do that, because everybody's so busy, that opportunity can go dark on you, and that decision-making team can go find somebody else. They may not even know who you are, even though you spend a bunch of time. So it's just a different world of sell selling now. And then you have to understand the politics. We see this all the time. We talked about this earlier about uh, RFPs. 
where big companies already know who they want to award an RFP to. And they won't tell you, I mean, you know, but they already know. But supply chain rules requires they get five RFPs in. Well, the four people that submit those RFPs are basically wasting their time, wasting their money and their resources, because that fifth person's gonna win unless he does something you know, really out from left field. Um, if you understand the politics, that will help you understand when there's an incumbent vendor that you can't upset. And once again, why waste your time there? Go spend your time where you actually can uh, gain, gain an opportunity, can actually gain a sale. Politics are big in this industry. And if you get outside the US, if any of y'all have ever done work in the Middle East or Central South America, politics is almost everything as far as business development over there. Um, and then heightened time awareness. Even though sales cycles have sped up, of all the verticals I know, the oil and gas industry has the slowest sales cycle out there. Once again, because we don't like to make mistakes. So if you don't have you know, a one year, an 18 month time awareness around your sales opportunities, you're gonna end up losing track of stuff and you end up stop prospecting while you're worried about closing these deals, which means six or eight or 10 months from now, you're gonna have a lull spot in, in your sales. You have nothing coming in because of what you did six or eight months ago. Um, that time awareness is what separates very good salespeople in this industry from mediocre salespeople because they're always understanding that what the work they do today is gonna affect the company's results a year from now. And then you have to manage risk. If anybody out there, is anybody out there from a software company? No hands? Yeah. So the software company, part of the sales process traditionally is the demo, you know, where they come in and they demo. The demo is actually the highest risk part of the whole sales process. They don't think of it that way. If they just do a generic demo for a prospect and they lose, um, lose that prospect where the prospect doesn't see the value in it, doesn't see how it applies to their business, the problems they're trying to solve, they just shot themselves in the foot. The demo needs to be the most well-rehearsed part of the sales process for software companies, which is not traditionally how they do it. Traditionally, it's a volume. It's the same demo to every prospect and we see what sticks. It doesn't work anymore. But you have to manage risk. I'm telling you for myself, um, before I started Modal Point, I worked for a very large research company called Forrester Research and had the oil and gas key account, so the most important accounts of Forrester Research. When they hired me, our CEO flew me up to Boston um, and had a meeting with me, and I sat down with him. And he goes, Mark, he goes, I'm glad we brought you on board. He goes, I see that you took over all the oil and gas accounts. He goes, next time you have a meeting with Exxon senior management, I want you to let my administrative assistant know, because I want to fly out there with you, because I want to walk in there with you, with Exxon. I want to shake their hands, and I want to tell them they need to take 40% of their profits and put in renewables. And in my head to go, I am not letting this guy walk into Exxon, right? He was a risk. My own CEO was a risk, right? So I had to manage that risk. Um, and I managed it actually very well. I managed to never let him actually talk to anybody senior at ExxonMobil. <laughs> um, but you have to do the same. Your business development element have to understand the risk. We talked about time. If you're in opportunity and there's not a time element around it, that is a risk. And if you can't um, get somebody to understand there's a timeless around that, walk away from it. Budget, right? If somebody says, oh, we'd love to have this, but we don't have it in our budget, talk to them about their budget. Do they have a CapEx and an OpEx budget? Because typically they're talking CapEx budget where you have to get on in a year before because you're a line item. Well, if you take your product or service and rent it to them, now you hit their OpEx budget. Most of the people in our industry don't know you can do that. As a sales professional, as a business development uh, professional, you being able to help your clients buy inside of their own company is super valuable. You know? So managing that risk is something that salespeople never had to do before, which is something you have to do in the future to be successful. Um, and then here's another internal survey that we do every year. This is for our own use. But look at this. This is recent, right? So um, the very top one, do your salespeople have relevant examples or case studies to share with the prospect? No. <laughs> do they understand the prospect's issue? No. Can they, rate, can they relate to the roles and responsibility? No. 
And it goes on and on and on until you get to the bottom when you ask, do the salespeople know about their company and products? Yeah. That needs to be flipped on its head, right? You need to understand your client's business as good, if not better, than they do. You need to be able to spot problems that they either think they can't solve or, more importantly, they don't even know they have, right? You need to be able to come in and understand how they buy. What is the process? How can you help move money around from budget to budget? You do all of that make it easy for the prospects to buy from you. You're not a vendor. You're a partner because you're helping them solve problems. Um, so, okay, now we're kind of segue. I've been running my mouth, and Jake's been over there just looking pretty when um, I mean, he's good at that. Um, now we're kind of getting to this kind of interactive thing because this world is changing. We talked about this, about how technology has changed sales, but you need to understand the, the core reasons why. So first thing, um, once again, this is re research that we do, but from 2013 to 2016, supply chain searches on Google have increased um, over 1,700%. So in 2012, nobody searched for one-inch ball valves in Google or drill stem, right, um, or flares. Now they are. You want to know why? The old guys like me that ran supply chain, that ran procurement, if I needed drill stem, I knew who my vendors were. I had an A and a B, maybe a C vendor. And if I didn't, if my A, B, and C vendor couldn't deliver to me, I knew the rest of them. I'm gone. I've taken a package. New guy rally college is taking my place. Somebody says, buy me some one-inch ball valves. What does he do? Pulls out his phone and searches on Google, right? Is your company showing up? Right now, it won't make a difference. In five years, it's going to make a huge difference. If you pull out your phone right now and type in oil and gas sales experts, you'll see me come up one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight in Google. I'm not paying for that. You can't fool Google. Google sincerely believes I am the number one oil and gas sales expert on the planet. That's intentional, right? It's a lot of work. Think what that does for my business. Anybody on the planet that's looking for an oil and gas sales expert sees me first. Right? We did $1 million last year. We do a lot of the same work that McKinsey does. McKinsey did $8 billion last year. We're not even the same universe. I now compete with McKinsey, and I'm kicking their butt, and they don't like it. Right? Years ago, I couldn't have done it. I would have had the same advertising budget that they had. I don't have those millions of dollars. Now, by using um, online searches, by ranking for certain things that I know my prospects are looking for, I'm now kicking a much bigger competitor's butt. You're in that same boat. You just don't know it yet. Our industry as a whole hasn't figured this out, but companies are starting to figure this out. Um, the CMO of National Oil well Varco has figured this out, and he has figured out that if National Oil well doesn't start understanding social media and start capturing search engine rankings, that smaller companies are going to pass him right by, and he's not going to let that happen. You're in the same boat. Um, the world has changed. There's nothing you can do about it, and you have to adapt. Now, I will tell you this much. It's actually easier. Doing this type of stuff is easier than the old days of cold calling people trying to set appointments. My phone just rings. I had to hire salespeople. I have so many inbound leads, I don't know what to do. Um, by understanding how this works, I then take the work of finding prospects off my lap, and now my prospects find me. And you can do exactly the same thing. So that's one of the things that's changed. It's one of the new buyers. Uh, Jake, you want to talk a little bit about, any, about online searches and how important that is? Yeah, sure. Why not? So uh, first off, I'm sorry I'm not quite as good-looking or long-winded as Mark, <laughs> uh, but I figured I'd go ahead and chime in here. Like Mark mentioned, technology has fundamentally changed the way that we make buying decisions. And just looking around the room, I'll use myself as, a, as an example. I'm probably one of the youngest people in here, so I guess I'm a good example. Uh, you're selling to people like me. You're marketing to people like me. Um, you're dealing with buyers who don't want to be sold. Nobody wants to be sold these days. Uh, they want to sell themselves. Uh, how many people in here do online shopping? That's a lot of people. Amazon, eBay, you name it, right? 
uh, like Mark said, you want your products, you want your services to be found, because um, people will be searching for that. Um, think about the last time you bought a car or a TV or anything else. You most likely did not just show up to the dealership and say, I want a car, sell me whatever you got, right? So you're gonna walk in there and most likely you're gonna have a, at least a decent idea, if you're even going to the dealership, of what you want. You'll have some specifications. There's so much information online that you can look up. Um, and people are making, that, that's how people are making the buying decisions uh, in oil and gas, uh, and it's becoming more that way. Um, the same way that they're making it in their own personal lives. Um, so what does that mean for you guys? Uh, so you guys need to position your companies uh, and your brand as leaders in the industry, specifically for whatever you do. Um, Since the buyers want to educate themselves, you need to help them educate themselves and provide them with tons and tons of content. So what me and Mark do every single week on Oil & Gas this week is we just provide content to people. Uh, we just give a breakdown of what's happening in Oil & Gas this week and, and people enjoy it. Um, and so it's the same thing with, with your companies. Um, so in 2017, I firmly believe, this is my thesis, that every company needs to be a media company first and then whatever your company is second. Okay, so producing tons and tons of good content. So that doesn't mean necessarily case studies. I think there's a time and a place for that. Um, but it means uh, video posts. It means getting on social media. It means blog posts. It means webinars, stuff like that, right? Uh, content is king. Um, how many people have a Facebook account? An overwhelming majority. Good, so you're part of the 1.9 billion people in the world that have a Facebook account. One of the things I hate to hear is that People don't make buying decisions on Facebook. People don't buy anything on Facebook, and that's just complete crap. My grandma's like 80 years old, she's got a Facebook, and she's buying all sorts of knickknacks on there all the time. So if she can do it, so can everyone else, right? Um, and I think that's one of the most, I guess, under-leveraged resources in B2B is platforms like Facebook, platforms like YouTube, platforms like maybe not Twitter, maybe Instagram. Um, that's, a, that's actually a huge surprise. So Instagram is actually the most engaged platform in the world, even though it has a lot lower number than like Facebook or YouTube. Um, so what that means is they're commenting, they're liking, they're just really engaging with the brands. Um, so the brands who can really dominate on Instagram are just really building this brand loyalty and they're getting repeat customers. Um, and it's the same thing, like GeoConvention is a great, great example of that. They have an Instagram, they have a hashtag going. Um, so you've got your content, how you wanna distribute it. Kinda goes back to exactly what I just said posting on Facebook, posting on Instagram, creating a YouTube series, possibly interviewing people in the industry, kind of like what Paige is doing on the Oil and Gas Industry Leaders podcast. Um, it's a great way to get exposure. Um, yeah, Jake, let me kind of jump in yeah. there. We do it all the time. So if you go to modalpoint.com, I got hundreds and hundreds of interviews I've shot, very short interviews. I don't talk about me at all, right? I talk about my, my, the person on the other end of the, of the camera. I talk about what they do, their business. My audience sees that as valuable. Oh, here's a new software company. They can solve this problem. They're doing it in a way nobody else has. What happens is then Google sees that people from Halliburton.com, Chevron.com, Slumberjack.com consume my content, and then Google gives me better search results. Hey, obviously, Mark has something to do with oil and gas. People, I shoot these videos on my iPhone. I'm getting ready to shoot some this week. I'll be here until Thursday. You'll see me walk around with my iPhone and tripod and a microphone. It's not hard. It's just a different way of thinking. But my website is my number one salesperson. My website sells for me 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My website sells me whether my wife gets mad at me or not, whether the price of oil is $80 a barrel or $40 a barrel. That's the new way of doing stuff. Um, that's the new way of cold calling, is providing that information up front so people know what you do, so by the time they actually reach out to you, they're 90% closed. Another thing I wanna talk about new buyers, Jake, is 
Traditionally, we have all these magazines, all these trade rags, right? I have subscriptions to all of them. That's how I learned a lot about this industry when I first started. So less than 4% of these new buyers actually subscribe and read the trade pubs, right? So your advertising dollars, if you're still doing this sort of stuff, I'm telling you, it's better off spent somewhere else. It's not hard, it's just different, and it's a different way of thinking about things. Um, Jake, do you want to talk a little bit about old media versus new media? So Jake and I are new media, right? We have a podcast. We, people pay us to talk, which I still think kind of crazy. Um, but they do it. Um, and it's the thing about new media is that this younger generation consumes it at will. We're not radio, we're not TV, where you have to watch it at a certain time. You can listen to us anytime you want. You download the podcast on your, on your cell phone of choice, you listen to us when we work out, you listen to us when you're commuting back and forth, you can stop us in the middle. It's, it's actually relatively easy and fun for us to do, but we're part of that new media movement. And you go, well, that's good for y'all. No, you need to understand how that works. You need to be part of that. Your companies need to be a part of that. That's where the world is going. We're invited as press everywhere. We're at OTC as press. We launched Page Podcast in the Caterpillar booth at OTC floor because Caterpillar sees the value of having us there because their traditional marketing doesn't work. They know they need to do something different. They just don't know what it is. And I am telling you all, Jake and I are telling you all what it is. Um, so less than 4% subscribe and read the trade pubs, right? Um, I still do, but what most of the new buyers do and most of, a lot of people in this room do, where do you get your media from? It's a cell phone in your hand. You know, you don't sit down with the magazine anymore. So if you have a company and you have a product or service that you want people to know about, where do you need to be? You just need to be where the attention is. I think that's the, the biggest takeaway. Wherever people's attention is, you can monetize that in a way that you can actually bring them into your brand. Um, and all of their attention, like Mark said, is going to be on mobile. Nobody pays attention to billboards. Nobody pays attention to radio ads or uh, TV ads or any of that. Um, you know, it's, it's just overplayed. And so you have to be where people's attention is on the social platforms. Yeah, and, and, and this younger generation, you can't fool them. So um, what you have to provide is good, useful, valuable content. We do it all the time. I mean, you can go to, go to my blog, and I talk specifically, hey, if you want to sell to Exxon, here's how you need to do it, right? Here's the top 10 things you need to do if you're struggling with your sales this year. You know, here's how you market to the oil and gas industry. Here, if you're a startup and you've never sold oil and gas, here's the top three things you need to do. That's all stuff I could charge for, but I don't. I give it away, and I give it away gladly. What we're doing right now, we could actually charge for this, but we're giving it away gladly. What that means is that everybody in this audience will take away, hopefully, knock on wood, something of value, and you'll see that Jake and I actually helped you with the problem, which is your sales and your marketing efforts in oil and gas. By seeing us in that way, you're starting to see Jake and I as experts, and we are seen as experts at this. When you're seen as an expert, now you're no longer a vendor. I'll tell you, everybody in this room, I keep this quiet, I'll tell you something that just tickles me to death. So for my consulting company, when a new prospect reaches out to me, and I fly out there to meet with them for the first time, they pay me. So they pay half my day rate plus my travel. The old sales guy to me is kind of smiling, going, you're paying me to come out there and selling you a bigger gig. I'm not being deceitful. I'm, be I'm totally transparent with them. I give good value in that first meeting. But because I'm not seen as a vendor, they now pay for me to come out there to sell them a bigger gig, which they're happy for me to do. Once again, because I'm seen as that knowledge expert in what we do. You need to be seen the same way, and you can. It's not hard. The other thing that's really cool about this is nobody in oil and gas is doing this. So it's really easy to capture that, that position. Um, it's doing things a little bit different. It's still work, um, but the dividends for your business development efforts just pay off unbelievable. Because what happens is people start calling you. Your phone rings. So Jake. And then here's another one. So 
I grew up networking, right? When I first started in this industry, that was literally my sales manager fussed at me for not spending enough money on my American Express with my clients. Like, I, you weren't, I weren't taking them out enough to eat and drink and, and stuff. Um, that still has value, but this young generation of new buyers do not, doesn't see the value in it. Um, I'm on the board of directors of the American Petroleum Institute, API, Houston chapter. We're the largest API chapter in the world. We're about to just disappear. We have no new young people showing up. Think about the networking groups that you belong to. How many young people, how many 25, 30 year olds are actually showing up in those events? They're not showing up for a reason. They don't see value in it. Um, at API Houston chapter, we stood up a young professionals group because what I figured out is no matter what I think. And we have a winner this week, Kyle Vesevic, project engineer with ExxonMobil. You're this week's winner. Uh, congratulations. If you would like to win your own bag, just go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast to enter. This week's rig count, uh, we've actually switched it up to where we're actually using Drilling Info's rig count instead of the old Baker Hughes rig count. The rig count, the U.S. rig count, is 993, so we're up 3% uh, from the previous week. We actually unintentionally skipped our first Friday Q&A this month, um, but we will be doing another one soon. So if you have a question, just go to Oil & Gas This Week slash Ask a Question. Um, if you like this podcast, you might also like maybe the HSE or the Oil and Gas Industry Leaders podcast. Uh, both a part of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Check those out. If you want to connect more with the community here, you can uh, join the LinkedIn group or you can also join the Facebook group um, to kind of jump in on the conversation. Uh, if you like the show, please leave us a review. Uh, that helps us kind of just spread the word. Um, and so it's not just Mark and I talking here. And I think that wraps it up. So folks, do good work, pay it forward, and we'll see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week Podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.